What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy 360 by Enercom. Excited to be bringing you our second Women in Energy interview, this time with Elizabeth Ames Coleman, who is the former Texas Railroad Commissioner, two-time um, Congresswoman in the Texas State House of Representatives, and really just an all-around really intelligent woman. She's she, she served in a wide variety of leadership positions, understands the global economic politics that, that, that go around, not just with oil and gas, but how it fits in with everything else. She sat down with Chairman and CFO of Entercom, Blanca Andrews, to talk all things. I don't even want to spoil it, so I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Blanca to let her kick this one off. Today on Women in Energy, we're speaking with the Honorable Elizabeth Ames Coleman. She's the former chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission and current partner of Energy North America, a full-service energy consulting, strategic advice, and government relations policy firm. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. Good afternoon, Blanca. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. Uh, let me start off. Uh, you have a long family history on the oil and gas industry. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like growing up in the industry and then working in the industry? Well, yes, I guess... Um, some have said that I was actually born under a drilling rig. And uh, while that is probably uh, not too far from the truth, literally, I'm pretty sure that I was on my first drilling rig before I was one year old. I come from a family. Uh, my dad is an independent oil producer. We had a, an independent company. And he actually first started working for his own father, who worked with Gilcrease Oil Company in Oklahoma and they moved to East Texas, to the oil fields in East Texas. And at one time, my father and grandfather had my great-grandfather working for them in the East Texas oil fields. My grandfather moved refineries around in East Texas. And um, after decades, eventually the company ended up in San Antonio, Texas, my, my birthplace and longtime home until I recently relocated to the great place of the Mississippi Delta. But I have a foot in both states, Mississippi and Texas. And along with my husband, Jack Coleman, we have a boutique energy consulting firm, Energy North America, you mentioned. But I can tell you, it was really exciting. One of the things I remember most about growing up in the oil patch is the fact that it would take us a really long time when we'd have car trips with my three brothers to go from one place to another, because invariably, every trip stuck in the back of that station wagon, fighting with each other maybe a little bit, we had to make several stops along the way to inspect the, the, the drilling operations on some well that my father was drilling across the state of Texas. So everything took a lot longer. And, and then we'd get out, we'd go up close to the rigs, we'd have picnics with the foreman. And so we were a car full of little kids constantly running around drilling rigs. And, you know, the memory of my father coming home after sitting on a well, maybe he'd be gone a week as a young dad with three little kids sitting on a well coming home. I vividly remember the smell of the oil that had infused itself in his down coat. And I was so little at the time, I could put the coat on and completely hide in it. So my earliest memory is probably three years old. And the smell of crude oil was something that 
was very powerful, and I've never forgotten it to this day. And of course, as some will say, well, that's the smell of money. And yeah, it sure is. And I had it firsthand. And it's a wonderful, fond memory that I have growing up in the oil patch and uh, going through every phase of technological improvements from the time I'd go work in our family office and I'd have to color maps with different color uh, pencils. Well, now, of course, everything's done by computer. So you don't need 12-year-old girls to come into your office and help somebody in your land department color code maps and and locations. So um, things have really changed mightily in a very, very positive way, I might add. Well, that sounds, that sounds wonderful, actually. And going into that, with your unique perspective in the industry, first in the oil and gas, as an oil and gas operator, then you became an elected official, and then a policy advisor. That connects a lot of different levels and interests. So tell us how, how you look at the energy industry, given that background. Well, you know, I, I was very fortunate, I think, uh, and I hope that my years in public service manifested the kinds of things I knew just from my, my actually being on the producer side of the upstream oil and gas industry. So I could marry all those perspectives because, so I grow up in a producing family. Then I actually became a lawmaker a policy maker looking at what could, what does it need to be better, more efficient, and also recognize the needs of the citizens and how it was going to be done. You know, and the environment has become a lot more important to people during my years of public service than it was, say, in my grandparents' years at the turn of the last century. So over 120 years, you know, social mores have changed, but also people's opinions. So when you can marry all that, then when I went to the Railroad Commission, really as a regulator and as a basically kind of the Supreme Court of oil and gas law, it wasn't my job to make policy. It was my job to apply policy that my former colleagues over in the Texas legislature in the pink building that we call the Capitol, what what did they make and how do I apply it? So I was able to marry the perspectives of people who really were in the business. And they were at the dinner table worrying about what, what was the world going to do to their business? What was government going to do to their business? And weather, what was weather going to do to their business? And so we were like the family farm. A family farmers, my father would say, you know, all these things matter to the price of the commodity that we were producing. And I tell you, people like that upstream, they're the ones who are really, they're the create job creators. It's not the legislators and it's not the railroad commissioners. It's the people who are actually doing it, who are creating the jobs, who are employing the service companies, who are needing and making deals for buying and selling water and other things, and technology. And so the real job creators are where I came from. So it was a real privilege. And I think I'm probably the only one who really 
well, I mean, I say that, it might be a little dangerous to say it, but until then, I was probably one of the few, if not one of the only ones who actually came up through the industry that way. Um, so now we've got at the Railroad Commission, or at the Railroad Commission, Christy Craddock. She she's come from a family who's been in the oil patch, and so she she would know more of the upstream issues. But it's really important because government, you know, it even though as a regulator where you're just applying the law, you can apply it with a really heavy hand. You can apply it out. Your if your goal is to affect change, for instance, if you have some uh, tendency to want to shut down the oil and gas industry, you can still do it by subtle ways and not so subtle ways of how you apply that law. And are you collaborating with the industry or are you an antagonist to the industry and to new technologies? And so don't get me wrong. Yes, I wasn't a legislator, didn't make policy, but I could implement a railroad commissioner can, a regulatory body can implement policy in a way that can hurt or help an industry. So it was a fascinating combination. Going on to that, um, how, how do you see the, the, how does the worldwide dynamics affect the dynamics of U.S. energy? I think it's very, very fascinating. And I, I made a point early in my career on the Railroad Commission. And I was always fascinated with it because I knew what it was doing to families who were in the upstream business, independent producers in America, because I knew firsthand that global politics mattered at the dinner table. Uh, but although I was busy doing local things and my jurisdiction was just the state of Texas, because I was interested in how, what I could do to assist, if you will, in a responsible way, efficiencies in the oil patch, it took me getting pretty deeply involved and keeping up with what is going on in geoglobal politics. And so when new technologies became to the fore, like the ability to liquefy natural gas, which isn't new anymore, actually, <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, where are we now? I guess Qatar was the big exporter and, you know, we're 25 years, 20 years of LNG shipments, but it's new for America, actually. Uh, once you get a fossil fuel, for instance, natural gas, which I think is something that I want to talk about today, you know, once it's fungible, you know, you are part of the world, the global economy, whether you like it or not. And so if you are an oil, oil producer, of course, we're shipping oil out, exporting oil. If you are exporting, producing a commodity that is being exported, whether you like it or not, you're, you're a part of the global community. So you better either have somebody who's keeping um, their finger on the pulse or you better be doing it yourself. And I have found it fascinating the last several years in, in uh, my professional career to, to engage in and be aware of and to work for uh, easing of exports 
of natural gas and, and oil since uh, my work with Energy North America. And since you mentioned it, uh, what, what are your thoughts on fossil fuels and natural gas? Well, of course, you know, the, the, what a lot of the public do not realize, uh, natural gas is a fossil fuel. Uh, but I think what we're going to be seeing, and I, I know that there's been a lot of interest in what on earth is the oil patch going to look like in the next in the coming years and and as you may have mentioned or or we were talking about earlier um you know if i don't if you don't mind me taking a just uh, taking this idea and running with it you know peak oil and i think that uh, there's so many unknowns right now that we've got to sit on what we have during this pandemic time when people have not been driving so much and the price of oil has slipped. I'm surprised it is what it is actually given people moving so very little now, but uh, you know, we've been talking about peak oil now for decades. It hasn't peaked. It's peak oil at a price actually, uh, However, I think that they got some legs now. This uh, transformative event, this, ep- this epidemic and across the world, people are going to be changing their habits. It is disrupting all sort of uh, the, the, the things that have become so ingrained in us and people traveling so much and uh, driving needing to drive to the offices, I think we're going to see a major shift in the use of crude oil primarily as far as the transportation fuel. And that's going to make a dent in the capacity for the public to consume the supplies that we now know how to get. So I do believe that the the softening is not just temporary because I think habits are going to be changing so much and we're going to find efficiencies i do think there's going to be a renaissance in natural gas um, as we are looking to uh replace or you because you can fuel a car now with natural gas you don't have to and i mean in the coming years you don't have to use crude oil to do that you're going to see a renaissance in natural gas and American natural gas producers. Probably I was just reading today about a a friend of mine who's, who's gone back in reinvigorating wells. He's drilling in the Eagle Ford and that's, he's got a lot of dry gas down there. He is a natural gas producer. That's what he looks at. So trends are already starting to show the potential growth in natural gas. I think it could get over $3 in MMBTU pretty quickly because it's got to be there at the bridge fuel and not just bridge fuel, the base fuel for all the renewables that people are, that are going to happen, whether some of some people like it or not. I, I think we are going to see some market share taking from taken from renewables, but they'll never take it. I mean, the natural gas and renewables go hand in hand and now, um, I think it's got a new future. And I want America to be ready for that future. Are our biggest uh, geopolitical threats inside or outside of the U.S.? 
Well, that 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 might go back a little bit to the ESG question too. Uh, you know, we saw the outside geopolitical threat to our domestic energy industry, oil and gas industry. Let's say oil industry, even though you know a lot of the same people are in those companies are producing both. We saw the out the uh, the geopolitical threat from without or from outside of our country when OPEC was flooding the market with crude oil last year. The American fracker was the target. As we talked, I was on this panel, uh, Intercom's panel, not too long ago, and we had some great discussion about that and their, their intent. And was it America or was it Russia? Which of us were the target? Well, Russia came in handy because the Saudis could pretend they were the target, but we're really the threat to other oil-producing countries. And so we don't have to be threatened by them. If our country uses leadership and the tools that we have at hand with the World Trade Organization and, and other trade rules, we can send off those kinds of, uh, that kind of mischief, if you will, by Saudi Arabia. It doesn't have to be blown out of proportion uh, and get take on legs and really do damage to our industry. But I do believe that the threat is also from within. And that is the ignorance, if you will. And I don't say that in a you know negative term, unless uneducated is negative, and maybe it is. But when you're not educated about the dynamic modeling of the oil and natural gas industry, and you are really thinking that you can achieve some pie in the sky future nirvana without fossil fuels based on what you read on Facebook and other social networking, you become a danger, a threat to the industry. Maybe you're glad you are a threat to the industry, but the problem is this industry has to fight back. We cannot just take it on the chin because we are going to be part of the future of America for hundreds of years to come. And the here and the now and the social networking and the, the ginning up of the, the anti-fossil fuel uh, arm of or or leg of society uh, is a danger from within and uh, I think maybe it could be equal you want to the Saudi to OPEC flooding the market and we have to use the tools at our disposal to ensure that even the American that thinks they can go without fossil fuels for their short lifetime in the scheme of things, we're going to protect them from themselves and make sure through education means, uh, whether it's public relations battles that need to be fought, whatever, you know, these kinds of means that we have, I think it's incumbent upon the energy to, to I hate to say it, but sometimes you've just got to save people from themselves. 
because they really don't realize it's hard to learn what how exactly an industry affects you in a tweet or in a few Facebook posts. And so, uh, as I was saying, the armchair experts could be uh, do some real damage and have already um, probably contributed to some of the issues and the regulatory hurdles that are keeping American natural gas and crude oil from the world stage where it belongs. Do you believe that the downturn in the industry is in due uh, to the energy and economic policy in the U.S.? You know, um, in many ways, uh, I would say uh, we don't really have an energy policy in the U.S., uh, a coherent one. And uh, so downturns like this are because of that, and and they contribute to uh economic instability when this industry uh, gets sick it contributes to the health and the economic well-being of our country or its its sickness contributes to the economic instability of the country but let me talk to you about a little bit about energy policy i like the way the states are meant to and do regulate their own energy production. I don't necessarily like the way they all do it, but I like that they do because we are too diverse. The geology is too different. I mean, the wells that are drilled, the water recycling, the disposal, all of this is so different. We, we couldn't, uh, the Railroad Commission regulating, we, we know Texas really well and our experts at that agency. I'm very proud of serving there. And to this day, I, will, I hold the people who work at the Texas Railroad Commission in very high regard. They are real experts and on the front lines and are very, uh, they, they participate in the, in the American energy conferences and are leaders. But what can be done in Texas cannot be done in West Virginia or Ohio, Pennsylvania, a lot of production going on there, but they have other issues on how to get natural gas, how to lay pipelines. I mean, the, you know, just the topography of the states alone. So I am okay that there's not one national energy policy to speak of, but the attempt by the constant changing of initiatives at the federal level is not good for business. Consistency is important for all companies, for long-term planning, for five-year planning, 10-year planning, and budgeting. And when you have a change in leadership that's constantly, even if if they're there eight years and they put people in at the DOE and then they switch over and for four more years, to me, I think that breeds some instability. And so, in effect, that's kind of a an American energy policy, which is like shifting sands. And I'll give you a, an example. 
even now today, for instance, at the Department of Energy, um, you know, there is a technology that can allow natural gas to be shipped short ranges and small ships. It's called CGL, compressed gas liquid. A patented technology that entrepreneurs in Texas have created. And the company in Houston, C1, aims to ship natural gas to nearby countries, to America, that are very, very poor and need a stable supply of natural gas. Their energy costs are so high and take such a high percentage of their income. And it drives, actually, um, their attempts to immigrate to, to America just because they're in these Latin American countries, some of them, they're, they're so poor there and the burden of their electric costs are so high. Well, so what you've got is a new way of shipping natural gas. That's technology, but laws have not caught up with technology. And so when you, the uh, export of natural gas in that state has not been, uh, is not been recognized legally in the Natural Gas Act. And so the, um, the, the, the need of a company like that that's technologically advanced is, is so far ahead of what government can allow it to do. And so it's a tremendous market, another market for this natural gas that we have in this country to go out along with LNG, doesn't compete with LNG, but it's another market for natural gas, American natural gas to make the world a safer and a cleaner place. But it's a technology that is too advanced for government. Government is too slow to catch up. And so in effect, it's what they aren't doing that is energy policy. It's not what they're doing. It's what they're not doing that is creating roadblocks to, uh, for markets, for producers here. So energy policy can be what do you do and what do you not do? And regardless of the intent behind it by who is the doer or the not doer, regardless of that intent, it's very destructive to our homegrown industry. How does um, Energy North America uh, see uh, oil and gas at the end of 2020? And how do you see it in 2021? Well, we see natural gas um, having a renaissance. I think that, uh, you know, it's time has come. It's been a stepchild now for well, for the last 10 years, uh, I think natural gas is going to, uh, you know, come back into its own. Oil is going to be uh, soft. We're not going to know how uh, soft until we get our arms around this pandemic. And we know what kind of growth we're going to be looking at. When this is all said and done, if too many wells haven't been laid down, and too many service workers haven't gone into other fields, we'll be able to ramp up pretty quick. But the problem is the industry um, can sometimes be its own worst enemy. 
and you know, it, it ramps up a little too fast. And then, of course, you know, we we had these highs and lows and, and, and prices and a lot of gnashing of teeth and pulling of hair. And so it's going to take a very nimble, take nimble leadership in the industry, in these companies to manage the next two years for the crude oil production uh, in the United States of America. But in those spots where there's some, some they'll go back in and, and start redeveloping some of these natural gas plays. We, we, we were very, um, very bullish on that. On that, should the U.S. be energy independent? That's always a great question and one of my favorites because I think, honestly, you know, you want to be energy independent, but you don't, you're, what, what I mean is you want if you need to be. But we just want to be energy secure. We want to be able to trade, that is buy and sell to countries who are our friends. And so, you know, we, we are, are, are growers and other commodities and crops. And, and, but that doesn't mean, you know, we can grow all the tomatoes we want here, but we don't want to do that we'll put some of that land to its other highest and better use. So I don't think there's any doubt that if we needed to, I mean, if just the entire world put a, uh, a, a somehow blocked America between our really, really rich onshore reserves and offshore I don't think there's any doubt that the country could produce all of the energy that we'll ever need. And of course, throw in some renewables there too, down the central United States where the wind blows and South US where it's hot and the sun shines a lot. But I don't think there's any doubt that we could be energy independent. But the question is, we've got to accept the fact that we don't really want to be. We just want to be energy secure and be a good trading partner to our friends. You mentioned the highs and lows of the industry. How can uh, we attract a younger generation? We're talking about we're talking about diversity right now. How can we attract the younger generation, minorities, and in specific women to join the industry now and in the future? What can we do? Yes. And you know, this is this has been an issue that I've been talking about and and aware of for 20 years. How do you get new blood in an industry? And one of the reasons, well, why do I want to do that when, you know, in 10 years or five years, we're going to have these layoffs because of these 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 price collapse and it's not unlike a family farmer as well and so i think that it is something that you have to be addressed we've got more women in the industry than ever before i mean you're here and i'm here and uh i have had the great opportunity to talk to 
women's groups in Houston, all across the, the, the state of Texas before and otherwise. Uh, but I have to say they're mostly lawyers and engineers and they're not uh, as much uh, the geologists, the, the ones putting the deals together, the wildcatters, the drilling of the wells. I'd like to see more of that. And I think that is a great, it is a great time now. A lot of this, of course, requires money, you know, going to raise capital to put in a drilling program. You, there are a few geologists who are women who are at the table. You know, they're, they're looking at seismic. They're putting the deals together. But there aren't many. So I think it's a great opportunity and a way Wall Street investors, uh, investment funds can recognize and companies and company leadership have to recognize these women and allow, you know, or make it much more comfortable for women to be investors. But that's across the board in a lot of industries. The investment, the investors in the companies, maybe they're, they own stock if it's a publicly held company. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the independent oil and gas producers, predominantly men. They are companies that are not publicly traded. They're family-owned. And heretofore, daughters have gone into other careers. That, there's my co-worker. Heretofore, daughters have gone into other careers. And I would like to suggest that leadership recognize uh, talent and find a way to, if it's not in their, their, if they're not within their own family or social network, they go out and find them and find a way to back them and back them in deals and let them drill some wells. Because women have a little bit of extra something, I think, in, as, as far as an oil finder, you, you know, whether it's a hunch or a, a, an understanding of the art of geology, where something can be found. Mm. I think we, it, 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 how to do it, well, that's going to be a, a conversation I'd like to have for another day because it's too long, I think, but it's something that needs to be looked at. And company leaders need to recognize that having a woman-owned company, whether it's a service, well-service company on the team, is something they ought to be looking at. And let's get some women in ownership positions of these companies. That's what I'd like to see. So would I. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll hold you up to, to, to your offer of having this uh, conversation at another time. I think that sounds I hope so. Thank you. Yes, Blanca. Elizabeth, what are you seeing uh, being part of an energy North America? I know you see a lot of policy, you see a, a lot of government uh, relations. What what are you seeing uh, in the next, uh, let's just say, three months uh, of the U.S. as far as um, what some people are thinking? I know a lot of the com uh, a few companies are, are declaring bankruptcy. Some are, are merging. Some are acquiring. What what do you see in the, or what do you forecast, I guess? Well, and I, I, I'm hoping that the, the bleeding is coming to an end. Um, a lot of these bankruptcies that have happened as a result of, of what has happened over the last year, the perfect storm of 
OPEC flooding the market uh, to drive out the American domestic energy producer, along with pan the pandemic, which played right into their hands, actually, um, has really been destructive. And of course, that this is a time when these mergers happen. And those who have the stain, those companies that have the stain power are picking up the assets from these other companies. Okay, that is not the creative destruction of capitalism. Those companies' value has not dropped because of poor leadership necessarily. It has dropped because of a pandemic, basically this force majeure, but it has dropped also because the Saudis flooded the market started flooding the market with cheap crude oil last year and nobody in Washington did a darn thing about it. And that is, uh, I mean, it's unconscionable really. And maybe it is or isn't because there was a potential a peace treaty that President Trump wanted to, to make sure that the companies, I mean, countries UAE and opened up uh, you know, open uh, pathways with Israel. I think that had something to do with the not rock the boat strategy of America. While people really important to our country were needed a life raft <laughs> and they didn't get it. So here we are now. Um, and I meant to mention, okay, so now we have Libya coming online. They have huge crude oil uh, reserves these port blockades have come down and Libya is going to be um, ramping up their production now. And, um, you know, the revised, both, uh, I guess, OPEC and IEA have revised their forecasts now that um, we're going to have nine and a half million barrels per day less uh, than we need. Um, that's going to be our demand. So, you know, I, I I still think it's kind of a hold on to your uh, <laughs> hold on to your your seat uh, for the next three months because right now we're in a shoulder month and um, you know prices for natural gas particularly are a little soft they'll catch up and a lot of these companies can switch over they can start they they drill wells they they produce. They can go into natural gas plays. We'll start seeing some shifting there, but I, I don't. I don't see. I don't have a lot of optimism for the next three months. I I understand. I know in my head, uh, and I think investors know too that this is when uh, companies find other companies to buy, and I'm not. I'm, I'm sorry about it. I, I don't think it's based on the right reasons. But, you know, nobody promised anybody a, a rose garden in the world of business and industry. And, and uh, some of the old timers might hang on there and, and small family producers and marginal producers who really depend a lot on that that check they get from the sale of the crude oil that they're producing. So I would say that if everybody can hunker down until some of this has passed this pandemic, and then we're going to see some new growth and growth strategies. And I would just advise people, you know, don't over drill, 
you know, don't go out and complete, you know, your, your, your wealth that you have to bring online, do it and hold on and, and keep that supply down for a while and let people recover. Because as you know, that, that supply makes a big difference um, on the price. It sure does. Elizabeth, as always, it's a pleasure always talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Blanca. I'm telling you guys high-level stuff there from both Elizabeth and Blanca. We really appreciate uh, Ms. Coleman taking time out of her schedule to sit down with us. If you want to hear all of our Women in Energy interviews, specifically the one we did with Laura Prang, which was our inaugural one, please go to the world's greatest website, oilandgas360.com, to check it out. You can also check out all of our other Energy 360 interviews via the world's greatest website, oilandgas360.com. Until next time, guys, we'll see you then.